Welcome to Trollodron Behind the Scenes. Episode 16, Triumph of the Wizard King. Well, hello and welcome to the final episode of this podcast series, as far as this season goes. Okay, let me clear on that. There is plans for more for next season, but as far as this year goes, we're in December now, and we are wrapping up 2021. Hopefully it's been a good and enjoyable year for you. And I am pleased to finally share a little bit of information today about Triumph of the Wizard King. And I'm going to be doing a little bit more of a backstory, deep delve, shall we say, in some respects, similar to what I did with the previous episodes on Trial of the Wizard King and Return of the Wizard King. And if you haven't taken a listen to those, I encourage you to go check that out. Take advantage of that because uh, you might find that of particular interest. Obviously, there's going to be certain things that I'm not going to be able to go super deep into because it might be pertaining to another forthcoming project or something maybe just on the horizon. I'd rather have that be a more fun and original experience for people listening than have something be more preemptive in that sense. But I will be sharing uh, spoilers and such about the book. So if you have not read the book, and I kind of was hesitant to kind of get this episode out there so early given that the book recently just you know came out a few months ago when i've just wrapped up a tour literally over just a couple months ago for it i realized people might not have been able to get a chance to read it yet so if that's you and you don't want to have any spoilers put into your head yet then maybe put a pause on this and come back to it a few months or a few weeks later whatever the case might be and and take advantage of it or listen to it then but for everybody else, let's move forward here. And as you might recall, what I said last episode, I talked about Trial of the Wizard King. I was sharing kind of the idea behind my thinking with how the book ended and how book three began. And I wanted to kind of begin at that point and kind of stretch things out from there. Basically, the idea was I was kind of concerned with how book two ended in the original layout, original format in that I had everyone get to the, the story. The, you know, the gang went to Galba. They all were ready to face off of Cadrith. And then they kind of had that cliffhanger ending where, okay, here he is, and then they don't fight him. And that just didn't seem right to me. didn't seem like the flow was right. There wasn't a sense of an overall <sighs> climatic, you know, satisfactory ending to that series, or that book, excuse me. And so it just felt better and it worked a lot better to bring in the final fight. And then we have that as a cliffhanger, basically saying, hey, they lost as far as we know. And now we move into book three, which has then a more fitting title, Triumph of the Wizard King, because he's basically won. And that made a lot more sense. The other challenge with it was how book three originally began was was with that fight. And while it may have been a good idea... How I typically have set up the series thus far with each book is you kind of reintroduce the characters, reintroduce the people, and it just didn't make a lot of sense to do that right after we have the fight scene. And I also was a little bit disjointed because you're trying to explain who these people are, and they were just basically fighting the main villain at this climatic scene in the previous chapter. So it it, it it didn't really mesh and fit with how things were going. And I liked it a lot better that we ended book two the way we did. 
And that book three began in the way that it did. I think that made it a lot better story and it made a good transition. And we'll, of course, we'll find out how people necessarily receive that in the not too distant future here as we wrap things up for the year and for the book series. But I, I was happy with it. I was pleased with it. And it was a fun way, I thought, to get things started. It also, like I said, provided me the opportunity to go in and reintroduce the characters, their struggles, and in a lot of ways, resolve their storylines. What, what do I mean by that? For instance, we had a Vendor's storyline basically got resolved relatively early on in book three as far as the initial part of it went. He was killed, obviously, and then he got to go back and somehow get a sense of regaining his honor, although it's kind of subtly hinted at that he might not necessarily have received that honor in full, but we get the impression that, yeah, he probably got skirted by and everyone, at least of his family and relatives and stuff, were satisfied, and he, he's in a good spot in that respect. It allowed us to take some new twists and turns with, with Dugan's uh, backstory as well, sharing some aspects that we might not have necessarily known was the case, him going to the afterlife. I thought was a very fun and uh, kind of different way of telling more about the world setting. That was part of the, one of the challenges with this series in general was, like I said earlier in previous episodes, how do you encompass a, a world setting and allowing people to experience different parts of it without going on overkill and, and making people kind of like, ah, oh, just shut up already, just <laughs> give me the story. And so the idea was to maybe let's have them go to the afterlife and let's explain how that all works. So you're getting a primer on the whole cosmology and the fundamentals of the world setting so that by the end of the book, end of the series, you have a better understanding of where things are, how things work, and you're better equipped to handle any future installments. Or if you want to, even go back and reread the book series and see where some Easter eggs or hidden things come into play and have maybe a greater understanding or awareness that you might not have necessarily had going into that. It worked well with, with Dugan as well because we had such a larger cosmic scale going on in the background. Obviously, we introduced more of that aspect in Book 2, Trial of the Wizard King, with the gods and the various people that are you know, plotting and things like that. We hinted at it a little bit with the first book there with the uh, the cosmic entities kind of going on, you know, Antogeny and Null. They're nameless at that point in time, kind of getting their tendrils, if you will, into the into the lifespans of these different characters and things and their their story as well, kind of hinting at what is going to be coming down the road. And so that was fun to finally reveal that and make that, uh, I guess, a bigger backdrop to the overall cosmic scale of the, the story. I, I always wanted to do something of a larger scale, too, with this story. It just seemed that's kind of how it needed to be. It just seemed more of an epic piece to begin with. It might not have built up necessarily the way people were initially thinking. That was, like I said earlier in previous episodes, that was partially by design and partially just how things had to fall, how they had to fit based on timelines and structures and how I how I tend to write uh, story structures and things like that, at least for this series, and how everything fit into that uh, process to get to where we were, were at the end of book three. The challenge, of course, is trying to... <laughs> trying to find a good wrapping up spot and trying to make sure everything gets accomplished. Everyone's story is, for the most part, completed to some satisfactory level. Obviously, I didn't want to necessarily have 
everything tidied up with a you know, neat little bow. I wanted to have some little threads here and there I can pick out for future connections or stories or other things down the road if I wanted to do that. But I wanted to also have it be self-contained and feel like it was a finished story. And if you just read those three books, you'd be you'd be done. You'd have a complete overall story you could enjoy and, and uh, maybe come back to, like I said, and get more out of later on. So that was the overall kind of some of the things going on in my head. There wasn't a lot of big changes that took place necessarily in the, the trilogy as far as this last book goes. Obviously, there were more in the front part, like I shared previously, because of the name changes and scenes and things like that. But by the time we got, I got to the third book, um, there there's a lot of stuff that was already established. Everything was kind of already figured out, and I don't want to say set in stone, but pretty much close to that. And it wasn't going to be changing anytime soon because it you know had to have some resolution and wrap things up. As far as surprises go, I was pretty surprised with how things went with Girthgall. I wasn't expecting him to take on Antogeny and Null like he did with the throne. In fact, the original ending, at least initially in the draft stages of the, the writing of it, had everything ending with the death of, of Cadrith and him kind of having the throne and all the gods are figuring, trying to figure out, well, what what do we do now? You know, everything's changed again. We have He has the throne. We all, we've upset this power balance and stuff. And that was kind of where things were going to be initially is that that was the new dynamic where things had kind of been reset, power dynamic structure, and da 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 That was the original idea with Girthgall. But then it the characters, which sometimes happen, actually more often than you realize if you're a writer and you get into it, they begin to have their own perspective and their own different take on things that they want to do. And he started directing the story in a different direction, and it became very clear to me that he wanted to finish what his father tried to start. His father, of course, being Vicar, the first the gods that tried to overthrow the cosmic entities, and basically, in his words, you know, gain independence for not just all of Titankind, but the gods, but also all of the universe, because they wanted to be free from you know, under the thumb of these two these two forces. Obviously, Vicar failed, but Girthgall would succeed, at least in his mind, because he now had the throne. This, you know, using this as the impetus of being that, you know, they're coming again and trying to destroy them in this world. He just saw it as a continual cycle, and it just needed to be stopped, so there could be true freedom and peace in the in the cosmos, which is kind of unusual and bizarre. Some might think coming from a god of chaos, <laughs> but but that's what he what he believed. And the more I wrote the story, the more the story is getting completed and and tweaked and things, the more it became clear that, yeah, that's the direction it needs to go. So that was a big surprise. That obviously called for some new chapters and some new elements that needed to be incorporated and put into the storyline that could be better hinted at, and the through line for that storyline was more apparent and more solid, and it didn't seem kind of tacked on and and it's an afterthought, like it would have been if it didn't have that long through line. And that's where the great blessing of having uh, the whole trilogy written beforehand really was of a benefit, because I had the ability, because it wasn't published yet, to go in and fine-tune things in book one and book two and make sure that through line for that story for Grethgall was there, have the hints and everything there long, long ahead of time, and allowed everything to kind of seem more natural and more realistic and how it unfolded, and like I said, not so forced and kind of tacked on at the end as a convenient little afterplot. Well, obviously, with, with Grickle doing that, that changed the dynamic even more because then he got taken out of the picture, 
which then allowed for a whole other collection of ideas and stories to be generated, which I'm in the process of working on as we speak, actually. So that was fun. I really kind of enjoyed how that played out. Like I said, wasn't expecting it, but overall, it was a little extra work going into it. But once it was all finished up and taken care of, I, I liked the way it went, and I was happy with how it turned out. And hopefully uh, many, many readers are as well. The other thing I wanted to do with the ending, and I guess this is a better way to put it, is with a, with a book that's so epic in scale like this book was, I mean, you could easily have gone on for you know another 100 pages or so trying to get everything resolved. There were just so many characters in it. There were so many things that needed to be wrapped up and, and confirmed as far as, you know, this is what happened, that kind of stuff, and just needed to have a satisfactory completion. And I wasn't seeing myself <laughs> doing that necessarily, writing it, I should say. And I wasn't seeing the publisher or people being on board for for a very fat book. I know some people like the gigantic books, and that's great, and I, I read them on occasion too, but this was kind of, it's kind of a setup for the trilogy, kind of how things were kind of established with the, the size of books and things, and I didn't want to surprise the publisher with the big fatter book, and I didn't want to surprise, you know, because they might have to raise the price and stuff and things like that, and that I didn't want to make it bad on the reader and stuff, so I think I, I tried to balance between the idea of where can we end this the right way, the most you know enjoyable way, and what's the best fit for everybody involved. You know, I'll, I'll write as much as I have to, but where's where's the good ending point for this? And that's where the idea came up for those little, I don't want to call them vignettes, but little mini scenes at the uh, the epilogue at the end of the, the book. Because if you recall, if you just if the book just ended by itself, and that's originally how it did, we have Rowan and Kadrissa sitting there, or actually standing there outside the the ruins of the, the battlefield there, and trying to figure out what they do next, where they go next, and then get ready to leave. And that's really where the book would have originally ended, at least in the draft form, initial draft forms. And as you can tell, if you read the book to that point, it it didn't really have the strong closure that I think was needed for the series, in particular before that book as well. It just left a lot of too much ambiguity. And actually it was kind of a letdown because you had this big, big fight scene, sequences of fights actually, and a lot of stuff that was happening. And yes, it was it was the denouement, was the falling action stuff going on. It was the time to wrap things up, but we don't really get a sense of of completion of the storyline if they just left at that point in time. And so with the epilogue, with the short little uh, scenes that were shown, it allowed for the opportunity to finish and wrap up the storylines without having to get into another you know a chapter for each one and dragging the book into you know another 100 pages or so of material that might not have necessarily had to be there. Probably one of the more favorite ones that I've of those little vignettes was with Cadrith. I think it was fun just to see what happened with him. A lot of times, you you know, I, I could have left it, and it probably would have worked. He would have been destroyed, and and most readers probably would have thought he's dead, gone, evaporated from reality, what have you. And that probably could have been the case. Would that would not have been that hard to do at all with how things were set up. But it was more enjoyable, I think, as a writing standpoint to let people know, no, he's still out there, but he's you know getting his final punishment, shall we say, for what he did. So, the, so there's a sense of him coming full circle, 
but now he's in a much worse place than he was before. And I thought that poetic nature of, of that irony played well for how things ended for him. And then we also are allowed then to have a final wrap-up for his character, which might not necessarily have been allowed under the previous concept of him just disappearing after the challenge with Girthgall. The one that I thought was kind of... I don't know if I don't know what you'd call it. Obviously, some are shorter than others, but the one I, I thought was really good to end with was obviously the one we ended with, with Girthgall. That, to me, in a lot of ways, encapsulated what we were doing with the trilogy. And what I wanted to kind of get out there with the trilogy is there's this cosmic thing, there's this stuff that's going on, this is the price that's paid. So it's the, the fitting conclusion to everything that took place. And I don't want to say it's frustrating or depressing or anything like that, how it ends, but it leaves people with a sense of this grand cosmic type of scope with the last thing they read. You know, there's this, you know, Girthkal basically sitting out in, in the midst of the void and he's chained to the throne and, you know, this all-powerful device that he can do things with, but he can't really work it. He can't really do anything with it. He's stuck on it. He's basically just having to use that to to stay alive. He can't, he can barely stay alive. I mean, it's just, it's a very interesting picture, a very interesting punishment, if you will, or judgment or end result for his storyline, which I think of all the gods, he had, he had a very robust, shall we say, presentation. Some of the gods over others were more widely presented and uh, explored and that obviously for their storyline purposes and such, but some of them are more actively involved than others. One of the scenes, obviously, that people might not like or like, depending upon how you like the character, was with what happened with Alara, and that was intentional as well. I didn't want to incorporate a final resolution to her story. We set things up with the dialogue and everything in such a way that it wasn't going to be uh, too clear on what she was speaking about. If you read the dialogue, it's not entirely clear if she is speaking the truth, and this is what she actually believes to, to Rowan, that, you know, we never loved you, that kind of thing, or if she is just saying that in the hopes that it will temporarily, yes, heartbreak Rowan, but set him free to go off and, and love other people and such, because there's nothing for them anymore anyway. So that there's that ambiguity in there, so you don't really know. It's like, okay, does she really mean this? Or is she just saying that because she just she loves Rowan and she just wants him to go on with his life, and this is the best way to, to do that? We also don't know what her final afterlife fate is. So she could be going to the abyss, she could be going to paradise, she could be going somewhere else. It's kind of left open that way purposefully, based on the previous explanation of how the afterlife in Mortis works, that way readers can make their own decisions. That's what I wanted to do and allow readers the, the freedom to, to make that decision. So you can decide what her ultimate fate is. I don't think I'm even going to go in there and write anything about that, at least at this point in time, because I just want people to be free to kind of make their own their own decisions on that aspect. But yeah, having the vignettes, the... the uh, epilogue scenes at the end of the book I think really helped encapsulate everyone's storyline, draw everything to a decent conclusion, and put everything in a 
bringing everything in a way back to Earth, if that makes sense, or Traladrin. So we come from the cosmic scheme of things again, and then we're brought back into the more, I don't want to say mundane, but more of the terrestrial mindset and concerns of, of Traladrin and the stuff that goes on in that world setting and everything that has that kind of perspective again. So again, kind of coming for full circle again at that point in time. As far as other surprises and things I can share about the book, the idea that I toyed around with initially was to have Cadrith win and him become like a powerful god and then take on the Pantheon and literally just change the entire framework of the the Pantheon itself. And that was one of the things that were toyed with many, many, many years ago when this was first sketched out and, and wrote, written down and kind of fleshed out in different elements. That was one of the ideas. But it was quickly abandoned because the longer I worked with the Pantheon and the more I saw all the stories that were coming out of this world setting, again, if you're not familiar with the Master Overplot, I would refer you to previous episodes of this and even uh, Trialed in Legends and Lore. We talk a little bit different ways about that, but specifically here behind the scenes about this overplot thing and there's certain stories that had to be told and certain characters that had to be in those stories and so it didn't make a lot of sense the longer I went to kick out this god or that god or this thing or that thing because they were needed in the future stories and future installments and so rather the choice was made to have him basically get close enough to maybe have succeeded but then die be wiped out be killed now that, that was where that level of believability almost, you know, achieving what he wanted to achieve came into play and I think added a level of, hopefully, a level of uh, excitement or uh, some gray area as far as you don't know. He could have succeeded, he could have not succeeded, so that adds some tension to it. One big surprise for me, uh, another big surprise, I should say, was with Haddock. I was not expecting him to be the hero, if you will, of the entire trilogy. Initially, when the book was uh, plotted out, I should say the series was plotted out, he was just an introductory character in book one that was made more or less for some comic relief, a way to connect with the tribe and hobgoblins in general, kind of our eyes and ears with, with Valen and things, giving a different point of view character to switch things back with once in a while. And maybe he would have been a tag-along character with, with Gilbin getting the scepter and things like that. And then he could have just died in the fight with with Cadrith. Yeah, Galba. That was kind of the original plan with him, as far as what he was going to do and where he was going to end up ultimately as a character. So I didn't really put a lot of investment of, of too much into him with book three. But as the story went along and things progressed, it became more and more clear that he had a larger role to play. And wouldn't it be really ironic and ultimately kind of slightly comedic if you have this goblin who no one would expect to do anything, in fact, if he died, no one would really miss him. But he ends up being the savior of the cosmos, and everyone's like, whoa, how did that happen? So that that became more and more of a driving point the longer I looked at and worked on the, the larger plot for book three. And it just seemed to fit right where it needed to fit in there. It just seemed to flow right. And again, one of the benefits of having a complete trilogy written before it's published and have the ability to go in and tweak things was that I was able to go in then and beef up 
his part in book one more, add more depth and character development for him, add more background and information for him there, and also give you more hints and stuff for book two. And then, of course, obviously tying everything together and moving that through line of the storyline through into book three, all the way up into the very end scene, all without giving too much away. That was a little bit of a challenge because you didn't want to... The way the timing works and the way the chapter breaks work and how they flowed, I was trying to do my best to be as mindful as possible to not tip my hand too much as far as what he was about. And the idea that he was actually he was actually involved getting the Scepter of Night with Gilbin was just another another fun twist that got to get added into the equation. And if you go back and read book two... There are some subtle hints and you know clues like oh just you know just felt right that I should have this scepter. He just couldn't pull his eyes off of it and stuff. Which at first reading, you can look at it and go, okay, yeah, he likes it. You go back now and go, ah, oh, because he was supposed to use it. and That was what he was supposed to do all the time. So so you can go back and find some of that stuff hidden in there. I'm not going to share all of it because that would kind of ruin the surprise. But some of that was intentional. Some of it just, I guess, worked out that way. <laughs> uh, it just fit and flowed together wonderfully. And uh, it just, like I said, I was happy with how it ended with him. I think he had a good ending. That wasn't so ambiguous where he ended up. I thought that was something that needed to be done given his background and history. I, th- I felt that readers probably needed to have a little bit more solid of a happy ending for his final story arc there and get a sense of accomplishment for what what he did. So that was a big surprise for me. I wasn't anticipating him doing what he did. and I. But I'm happy that he did it because it gave just the right of amount of twist and turn to the story at that pivotal time in it that needed to be uh, to be accomplished. Otherwise, there wasn't, I mean, there, there were other little tweaks here and there that I thought was were interesting. But these, there wasn't a lot of stuff that needed to be re- revamped or added or changed around, like I said, because most of it, was already completed and finished as far as the plot and structure went before I even got to the book. And by that time, like I said, you pretty much have to know what you're doing in book three after that, after finishing book one and book two, because everything is leading up to it. You pretty much have a roadmap for what needs to happen and what needs to get done. So again, I think that was well achieved. You might not. That's your your opinion, obviously. But like I said, hopefully people more than less enjoyed it and thought it was worth their time and investment of of money or whatever the case might be. One thing I did not put in the end epilogue, but I was toying around with, was a little mini scene about Goralis. And I wasn't sure if that was needed or not initially. Later on, it became clear that it wasn't, but for, for a short period of time, when that part of the book was being sketched out and developed, there was the idea of incorporating a little mini scene with the newly awakened Goralis trying to begin his reign of terror or whatever he was going to be doing at that time, thanks in part to Gilman awakening him. And that was something initially that I thought needed to be explained more and have some type of resolution for that scene, that character, so it didn't seem like it was a forgotten thing. But the more the story kind of resolved itself and the way the things were flowing with the epilogue, the scenes upon scenes upon scenes, you know, the actual you know, ebb and flow of the stories and the scenes and such, it didn't seem really relevant to have any mention of him 
in that particular part of the book. Now, that's not to say I'm not going to ever do anything with them. In fact, I have several plans for future things that tie into what, what happened and what came off of that encounter with Goralis, but it just didn't seem like the right place to incorporate it with the end of this trilogy. It would just open up another another vein of story, if you will, that I didn't want people to, to end on because it wasn't a smooth, clean ending, and that's what I was trying to achieve with this epilogue, was more of a wrapping things up and finishing things up in a hopefully, like I said, satisfactory manner. So that's what I'm going to talk about today on Triumph of the Wizard King. I'm sure there's probably some more things I can share in the future if I'm so led to do so, but right now I just wanted to hit the high points and share some stuff and backgrounds about that. If you have questions or things you'd like to know more or any questions particularly about the series, the trilogy, this website, the podcast, the website now for Trollodin, I mean, anything else that ties into this world setting, feel free, or podcast, feel free to send me an email at behind, that's B-E-H-I-N-D, at chadcorey.com, that's C-H-A-D-C-O-R-R-I-E, and I'll do my best to see about finding a way to answer that if uh, it's appropriate for this podcast or other things, and uh, getting that out to people in general, because you might not be the only person that has that same question or would like to get that same information or or what have you. But in the meantime, have a wonderful end of your year. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and I will see you next year in Season 3. Thanks for listening. This podcast is copyright Chad Corey. All rights reserved.